It's no surprise that updating the electricity grid today will make for a better tomorrow. Increased self-sufficiency is just one of the benefits. The Great Grid upgrade will also boost the economy and create new green jobs. And best of all, you can continue doing the things you love, like watching the latest epic nature documentary or listening to this podcast while caring for the planet too. Find out more at nationalgrid.com. This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispie, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between, offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Hello and welcome to the podcast, the Nature and Countryside podcast from BBC Country Farm magazine. My name is Fergus Collins and I'm the host of the podcast and a warm welcome to season 11, where we're hearing voices of the countryside, whether they be the wild songs of nature or the wise words of people who live and work in the outdoors. And we're already on episode 10, where our friend and regular podcaster, Annabelle Ross, heads to an RSPB reserve in Oxfordshire to meet with the Chief Executive of Rewilding Britain, Rebecca Wrigley, to talk about the issues around how we create a sustainable world for nature that also supports humans. It's a fascinating and insightful interview, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on the subject of rewilding and how we bring nature back to the British countryside. You can email me on editor at countryfile.com. So can you tell us where we are, please? Uh, we're at an RSPB reserve called Otmore, just outside Oxford. And why did you choose Upmore? Um, because it's, it's, it's near to the centre of, of Oxford. It's a beautiful site and it has huge potential, I think. It's 600, I think it's 600 hectares, including wetlands and some sort of farmed lands. But beautiful arrays of birds. It's very famous for its murmurations in the winter. Um, but it's, it's right close to Oxford City, within two or three miles. That's huge, 600 hectares. Yeah. Yeah the area that has potential to be sort of connected up and re-wetted. I mean, obviously it is a wetland, but some, as you can see, there's some extensively grazed land, rough rough pasture. And it also has the potential to connect up with the ancient Burnwood forest, of, of which very little remains. But, it, you know, it, in terms of rewilding, it, it has, has huge potential, I think. I'm not sure if this is the, if, if this is the right way to ask, but could you try and define what it actually means, rewilding, for Britain? Well, for us, rewilding is the large-scale restoration of naturally functioning ecosystems to, to the point where nature can eventually take care of itself, but also take care of us. So nature provides us with our 
our life support systems. It's an intricate and amazing web of life. So rewilding is about is about nature, but it's also about people because we believe people are part of nature. We are part of that intricate web of life. And 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 I think the mistake in the past has been trying to separate it, sort of nature over there and and people over here. And actually, we just we need to integrate it and ensure that both can thrive. With COP26 going on, we know and are aware of more than ever before. I think the impacts that we're having on on our life support systems, on on the atmosphere, on on our water and on, on our air, and how important it is to to restore that, to restore our living systems. Again, not just for nature, but for us as part of nature. So we um, hopefully will be able to breathe more easily. <laughs> the more rewilding you can achieve. Absolutely, but it brings us things like natural flood management, for instance, clean water, and to an extent, some you know the resources on which we depend. But there's also the amazing wonder of nature, and that sort of human well-being that comes with it. Again, through lockdown and through the pandemic, we've this sort of surge in interest and and kind of love and connection to nature because it's been really important for people's mental health to just sort of get out and and breathe and and experience nature and the calm that comes from it and I think we're learning more and more just how important that is for our health and well-being. How long has rewilding Britain been up and running and and, and how did you come to found it? So we launched six and a half years ago now and I've been involved right from the start really and it was really kicked off I suppose by the growing interest in in rewilding that came from the publication of George Monbiot's book Feral and lots of people got it in contact with with him to say look we need to make something happen this is something we need to do something about and I was involved in those early stages we did a sense check of do we need an organization to support this and most of the people that we spoke to said said yes that that was necessary and we launched six and a half years ago now. So is your background in uh, in that world? Yep, I've been working in conservation and development for ooh, nearly 30 years now. For 10 of those years, I was based overseas, so in Mexico and Uganda and the Pacific. So I saw firsthand communities that were living with and dependent on nature and how to work with those communities to both restore and protect rewild nature, but also bring benefits to those local communities. As far as Britain's concerned, do you have a, a goal? Do you have a sort of percentage that you'd like to see rewilded in Britain? And if you do, how's it looking? <laughs> well, I mean, I, we really support the relatively recent leaders' pledge for nature, global leaders. Nature's recovery costs 30% of, of the world by 2030, not least in the face of the climate and ecological crisis. So we support that aspiration. I mean, at the moment, the UK government's pledge is, is just to halt the reverse of decline across that area and increase protected areas. What we'd like to see is nature's restoration and rewilding across those areas. But when we talk about rewilding, there's a, there's a sort of scale of rewilding. On the one end, yes, they could be what we call core rewilding areas that are as much as is possible where nature is left to take care of itself, where we restore natural processes and that amazing intricate web of life but there are probably other areas that are at different levels of every wilding and different extent of restoration of, of those natural processes where there can be some forms of 
kind of extraction from nature as long as as that extraction doesn't damage the process of, of gradual recovery of nature. Am I right in thinking you've got a campaign going on at the moment that is to try to rewild our national parks, which seems a bit sort of like, oh, so they're not, they're not wild enough. <laughs> no, no, I, in Britain, not. In fact, well, all, all of our national parks are categorised as, as Category 5, which I understand... So the International Union of Conservation and Nature, IUCN, categorises national parks all around the world. And I understand that they created a new one for, for, the, for the UK because none of our national parks fit into any of the other categories. And largely they're still farmed landscapes. So what we'd like to see is wilder areas across our national parks. They should be our shining examples of the amazing native habitats that we have in Britain, sort of wonderful mosaics of, of peatland and woodland and heathland and leading down into river valleys and protecting our, our water sources and down out into salt marshes and, and even out to sea and protecting the reefs and, and seagrass beds and sea kelp beds and oyster beds. So we don't think it's too much to ask to have national parks being those, those pearls or those jewels or those shining examples of what nature can be in Britain. Yes, of course. Gosh, I, how awful to be the most sort of unwild, wild bits of Britain. <laughs> For me, it's pretty shameful that we're, I think it's 189th out of 218 countries in terms of biodiversity intactness. Oh. So we have this... Oh no, that's terrible. <laughs> so we have this interesting kind of, what the psychologists might call cognitive dissonance, this sort of rupture between... Britain being one of the most nature-loving countries on earth. I mean, we, we join nature organisations and the National Trust and the RSPB in our millions and we watch nature programmes in our millions. But when you look out across our landscape, it is actually extremely nature-depleted. With the work you've done so far with Rewilding Britain, what are the moments that have made your heart sing? Ten months ago, we set up a rewilding network, partly because ever since we were launched, we've been contacted by people saying um, we want to rewild either small parcels of land or larger areas of land or or even now marine areas. And we weren't quite sure how to respond to all the interest. And then we thought, right, well, let's create a network so and a learning platform so that people can learn from each other and find out what others are doing and how others are are putting rewilding into practice and that has made my heart sing because people are contacting us now more and more and really diverse groups from um, we have the Ministry of Defence some of their land is is, is on the network other conservation organisations like the RSPB and wildlife trusts but also farmers we had our first farmer cluster join some larger estates some community-led initiatives so it's really interesting to see the diverse range of, of ownership of land that is involved in, in rewilding and probably coming to it from different perspectives. I mean, there might be some, like conservation-owned land, that it is their, their purpose to conserve and protect and restore that land. But others might see it for more economic diversification reasons as a way of diversifying the, the, the income sources and income streams that they can have from the land. So it's a really... To me, inspiring, and then it's also inspiring seeing the way that they're 
the members of the network are sharing information and knowledge and, and experiences and, and gaining from that. Um, so we're hoping that that will grow and, and be able to disseminate some of that learning more broadly. Mm. And presumably, we know there's been this quite big uptake of people just rewilding their back gardens. Yes. Uh, you know, again, it's, it's, it's not the scale that we, uh, we've had to focus on what, where we can achieve most impact. And, and there are others working on wilding gardens. But it is really important, not least because it's, it's what people can practically do. There's a lot of people that don't have access to large areas of, of land. But those people can, can rewild their gardens and then maybe form neighbourhood rewilding groups like we have neighbourhood watch groups and maybe connect into their local park. I mean, this week there was an announcement of first urban large-scale rewilding project working in collaboration with the Derbyshire Wildlife Trust. So I think that connection with nature is, is really important and wilder nature. Oh, shall we see if we can see? Are we allowed to lift oh, them? Yeah. See if this is... What is under these three plates? Okay, oh, no, so what are we lifting? It's just a bit of... Oh, no, sadly not. No, it's probably not sunny enough. We're hoping for a common lizard, a wood mouse or a grass snake, and we didn't get any of them. I'm just going to put this down for a second. I'm famous Ooh. for... Should we have a look under this one? Yes, let's see. Under this corrugated sheet. No, okay. Well, we'll keep looking. It'll be very exciting if we find anything. Oh, that's right. They like the warmth, don't they? Yeah. No, okay. It's not warm enough quite, is it? I th oh, that would be my guess. Yeah. Earlier, you, talk, you, you, you used the word wilding. Do you mix between wilding and rewilding? And what's, is there a difference? No, not... Uh, I mean, we, we use the word rewilding, but we don't require everybody else to... I mean, some people are a bit reticent about using that word. And, and to us, it's more about the principles that is important. Some use wilding, some use rewilding. But again, it's, it's the principles that are important. And we have five principles of re rewilding. One is letting nature lead. So restoring natural processes like free-flowing rivers and natural balances of predator and prey wherever possible and that restoring that complex and intricate web of life. What comes with that is working at nature's scale, so a lot of those processes can't happen on a small scale. We feel that scale can be achieved through connectivity as much as large, isolated wildernesses, as it were. And what we were just talking about, rewilding gardens, I think is, is really important that we find places where we can connect those larger areas, maybe through river corridors into urban areas, into our parks and our, and our gardens. But rewilding is also, as I mentioned before, it's about people and communities. People are part of nature, so it has to work both ecologically and, and economically and socially. So we also feel that rewilding has to be associated with or should be linked to what we're calling nature-based economies. So economies that help nature to, to and support nature to thrive and flourish whilst also supporting prosperous communities. Again, it's that that idea that it's people are part it's got of to nature. Benefit everyone. It's got to, uh, you know, if we've got your economic system working against your ecological system, you're never going to get that long-term and lasting restoration. And then the fifth principle is that benefits for the long term. Uh, so we've got to create lasting change if this is really going to have an impact or reverse that biodiversity loss that we've seen over the last 
100, 200, 500 years in, in Britain. Is there, do you have a favourite wild animal that's um, coming back that you're really excited about? I'd love to. I've never seen a pine martin. I love pine martins. I've always, I have since I was a, a child. I think it's their sweet little white bib somehow. But I think, you know, and obviously I would, I'd, I'd love to see species like lynx return and the amazing role that they play. But it's all also about the smaller species like the European tree frog, for instance, and, and glowworms. I mean, they're a predator too. Yeah, glowworms are a predator. Yeah, they had um, an added, added advantage of eating slugs, apparently. Gosh. So they should be of, of great benefit to a lot of <laughs> those garden rewilders. So, again, it's about that kind of intricate web that is, is amazing. And it's, I think that's what we intuitively know we see when we see a, an amazing wildlife documentary on the, on the television. Those jungles of Costa Rica or the savannas of, of Africa. And what we're seeing is that complexity and that web and that interaction that is so amazing and people pay thousands of pounds to go and see that in other places and I would love to have places in Britain where we could go and see those things. I mean I remember in in mid Wales we were walking up a little river valley called Cleve Nant and it's a tiny bit of temperate rainforest and we sat by the river and there's a rock that you can sit on and these trout were leaping up the waterfall and just, just that sense of wonder and like, when's it going to happen? And, and uh, it's just sort of that, that sort of palpable sense. I, I had the same thing when I visited the River Otter in, in Devon, where they now have wild beavers. And we walked along the river. There's a path. And we weren't quite sure where, where the right spot would be. And then we saw this little group of people and thought, oh, that must be it. But everyone was sort of silent and, and waiting. And you could hear these sort of plops and splashes and wondering when these beaver would come out and and then they did and there was just this sense of awe and wonder and just it was was amazing oh gosh that's so beautiful so I hope I'm not going to ruin it all by now asking (laughs) when have you had the moments of head in hands and like oh what are we going to do now um I mean they have uh, obviously been those moments I think it's when people try and have tried to polarize things and talk about the polarization of uh, that rewilding creates and I, I actually don't see that it's I see it as part of a, a spectrum a sort of scale and and actually it's about bringing people together and taking an integrated view of of what we're asking of the land and sea and fundamentally that's the question that we're asking of ourselves and and the answer to that question has probably changed in the last 50 years the more that we know that our impact on the planet can't be sustained. And so I'd love to see farmers and foresters and conservationists and communities coming together and talking about what they feel about what the answer to that question is. What are we asking of the land and sea and how can we create locally-led plans that address, address that, that have areas of... Of, of rewilding that set some areas aside have air, mixed areas of, of land use that might have some forms of extensive extraction maybe extensive and semi-wild grazing or continuous cover forestry some forms of tourism that have a, a light impact on nature all intermixed so that you can create this amazing mosaic, mosaic of, yeah. of both different economic activities but also ecological activities where there's again so there are peatlands and heathlands and woodlands and 
and continuously changing and, and dynamic and all that amazing succession that happens in nature. So you might have a free-flowing river that occasionally floods, creating a disturbance that then creates a habitat for pioneer species to come in, or, or there might be a storm that... Oh, there's a lovely red kite flying overhead. Oh, yeah that knocks down a few trees and creates a space for other species to come in. And I think we're just not used to seeing those sorts of dynamic habitats in, in Britain. I'd, I'd love to see that return. It's all, almost linking nature's regeneration with community regeneration. Many of the um, rural and coastal communities that are, are closest to the land and sea are the ones that are most marginalised, interestingly. And I think there should be... A, some call it a just rural transition, others call it levelling up, but I think it could be the impetus. And that's why in a report that we put out recently on rewilding and the rural economy, what we're calling for is, is resources going into nature-based enterprise and creating enterprise innovation zones. Because who knows what types, types of businesses and enterprises and productive activities and services that could be provided that are that enhance nature and enhance people at the same time yeah so that they could come out of the rewilding side of, yeah. of so it, they can sort of work together i i just stopped here because i wondered if this is a hide is this it is, a, a hide, is, this, yes. oh, is that really your sort of job is to connect community with communities talk to communities and reassure them encourage them yeah and uh, i mean that's part of what the network is the rewilding network is all about yeah, we're looking out over. Oh, the the the, um, the eye level uh, of these two windows. One's too high for me. One's too low. <laughs> I'm I'm just in the middle, but it's okay. I can stand on my tippy toes. So we are seeing um, swans, and is that a cormorant? Yes, stretching out. Again, of course, I haven't got my. I haven't got your glasses or your binoculars. And oh, yep. ducks or geese flying over. Yep, and huge areas of reed bed. And so this is where. Throughout the winter, there are huge, beautiful murmurations of starlings. Many people come, you see, of an evening. Oh, they come at here. At twilight, yeah. they come and stand here. And have you done that several times? Or, oh, or, yes. Yeah. Yeah, 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 three or four times. It's, it's again, it's awe-inspiring. In fact, one time we saw uh, the flocks of starlings coming in and a kestrel. Oh, no, sorry, it was a peregrine harrying it and sort of swoop, stooping into the... Uh, right into, into the, it? Yeah. Gosh, what an excitement for the peregrine. And then um, Marsh Harry is sort of wheeling over the reed beds. Is it that um, the starlings... It might be a really silly question. Is it that the starlings like a flat area to murmurate over? Do you know, I actually don't... They, they all... They sort of... It almost looks like they're being sucked down on, into the reed bed. They roost in the reed bed. But why they only do that in winter, I'm afraid I'm not... A, a good enough ecologist to know that. I'd love to know the answer to that question because they only do it between, sort of, I, th I think probably starting now, but it's at its best in late November, December, January time. So anyone can come here and yeah. see them. It's completely open to. Oh, that's so brilliant. Yeah. Do, yes. you, do you know what that wooden-looking? Well, I don't know if you can. Uh, high, uh, sort of oh, on I stilts. A, I've not seen that before. I think that must be new. It yeah. looks like another. Looks high. quite new. Yeah, it looks quite new. Oh, well, that's lovely. The cormorant looks a bit lonely, but <laughs> bit, bit on her own or on his own. Actually, you can't. There isn't a circular walk you can do, um, so we're going to have to go back, kind okay. of out that way. But we can go on a little bit more and, and then, then turn come back. back. That's lovely. Yeah. Oh, I see. Somebody's written the birds of Otmore. 
Do you know Peter Barker? <laughs> I don't know Peter Barker, no. <laughs> Not that you would know everybody you had here. <laughs> and I've never heard a bittern here, actually. That being a bittern. Yeah. yeah. Do they have a particularly wonderful sound? I think they boom, don't they? The boom of the bittern. I don't know, actually. I, I normally ask people to make the sound of the bird that they're talking about, but I'm not going to put you in that position, the boom <laughs> of the bittern. Uh, no. I once asked um, some curly noises from various people, and it was just so lovely hearing them doing it. I was very I'm impressed. Not sure I, could. I love the sound, but yeah. I'm not sure I could repeat it. Yeah, no, it's beautiful. I suppose one of the things I... I, for some reason I was surprised by is that when you talk about rewilding Britain I think everybody expects to see a lot of trees popping up here and there and replacing lost forests but actually rewilding also is really important for the for the sea for the ocean and yes. for the rivers so that must be quite tricky the ocean rewilding the ocean how does that work but in some ways it's it's easier because actually the seabed once you stop destroying it is very good at restoring itself and that's been proved in these areas, highly protected areas. For example, uh, in the island Arran, there's a community-led group called Coast who have set up a no-take zone, partly led by, by divers who could see the damage that was, being happen- that, that was happening and, and the reduction in the size of fish and, and the uh, diversity of, of life that they were seeing on their, on their diving trips. A lot can happen simply by stopping extracting, so stopping dredging and trawling and if you and one of the problems with the sea is if if you actually saw the damage that dredging and trawling does to the seabed people would be aghast so that's one thing you can do but then there are a lot of habitats and and, in ecosystems around britain that are so severely depleted that you need to help help restore more more actively restore them so our oyster beds i mean the north sea used to be turquoise blue and it's now silted up partly because the whole bed of the North Sea used to be covered in oysters well to a large extent and they stabilized and filtered the the seabed so what we're seeing now with the kind of gray murkiness of the North Sea is sediment that would not have been lifted into the water column in the past so restoring those those oyster beds and seagrass beds and sea kelp beds so there's some really exciting projects going on around around our coasts, restoring those ecosystems to the point where they can start to seed themselves much more proactively. So a lot can be done at sea, and and again, both for the benefit of nature, but what's been proved, particularly in other areas of the world, is that in setting aside areas where that are highly protected, that can replenish the the fish stocks and the seas around them. So it can be, in the long term, it can be win-win. It doesn't have to be setting aside for nature and at people's cost. I was going to say maybe just on land, but do you have a sort of percentage that you're hoping to rewild and keep wild? Have you got a percentage of of the country that you're aiming for, or does it not work that way? Well, we agree with the 30% by 2030. Of that, by 2030, we'd like to see at least 5% as core rewilding areas or working towards being core rewilding areas that we say, and particularly in our national parks. So what we'd like to see is at least 10% of our, kind of double that in national parks, because they again should be our shining examples uh, of our, our native habitats. And then the rest we still see as, as, as 
processes of rewilding or regenerative areas where we've, we employ forms of the use, use of the land and sea that can be demonstrated to be leading towards nature's restoration but can have some forms of extractive activities or, or economic activities. Again, I, I mentioned earlier, like semi-wild or, or very extensive grazing of some animals, uh, wild meat production. Because rewilding, for instance, because we have no top predators, there is always, for now, going to need to be some forms of, of culling to, to maintain natural balances of, of predator, and well, predator being human, of prey, of, of sort of herbivore numbers. And so that can, what would be great is to see that leading to wild meat production and that we find markets for that meat, for instance. So there's all sorts of things that could be linked up and linked to locally led uh, land and marine use plans that, that com- communities are involved in creating and also involved in, in benefiting from and a sense of shared value creation where we're looking at the ecological value but also the social value and the economic value to local communities. I mean, fair enough that you're running Rewilding Britain, Rebecca, but what's not to love about Rewilding Britain? I mean, <laughs> where would you come across someone who says, oh, I'm sorry, absolutely no way, that's not, not going to work for me. Where would that happen? Well, I mean, I think there are a lot of people, a lot in the farming community, that, again, in that idea of polarisation, that see rewilding as a threat, a threat to food production, for instance, which actually really isn't isn't the case to any significant degree. I mean, we have 1.8 million hectares in Britain of deer stalking estates that have, and 1.4 million hectares of grass shooting estates, all of which can contribute very little to food production. That could be rewilded, and you could even maintain some forms of stalking and shooting on those estates, but manage, manage that in a very different way, a much less intensive way, and again, much more about restoring natural processes uh, over that land but we also have large areas of highly marginal agricultural productivity I mean in the recent national food strategy they highlighted that we could turn nine percent of agricultural land over to nature and only lose one percent of the calories produced you know it's not it's not necessarily the choice that it is being portrayed it's again it's it's nature or food and and actually fundamentally it is about making choices about the way that we use the land and sea and what we're asking of it again it keeps in my mind coming back to that question yes we're asking the land and, and sea to sustain us in terms of food and other resources we also need to to sustain the living systems on which fundamentally on which we depend and we know that if we don't do something radically different we're not going to be able to even produce the food that we produce now I mean I was really interested in an article I saw about how they're now starting to produce coffee in Sicily I think it was Sicily it was somewhere in southern Italy because the climate's changed so much that they can't produce the the crops that they were producing up until now and now producing crops that um, are in effect tropical crops so in 10, 20, 30 years' time, what sort of crops will we be able to grow in Britain? And certainly if we don't do something to reverse the climate and ecological crisis that we're facing. I think this is the end point. Okay. As far as we can go. When did the idea of 
rewilding Britain start? I mean, or have... When was there a sort of tipping point where it's like, hang on a minute, we've got to start thinking about this? I mean, there's a famous rewilding project in Sussex, Nep yes. Estate. And that seems to me to have been the first kind of time where I was like, oh, OK, what's this? But obviously, um, they, she wrote a book about it as well, Isabella Tree. But Or or have there been other people, well, George Monbiot, I suppose, mm-hmm. saying, hang on a minute, no, we've got to stop doing what we're doing. So how many? how long have we been contemplating the idea of rewilding um i mean i think there have been early pioneers around for for a while i mean the ones that come to mind are trees for life in scotland that was originally set up by alan featherston watson they've in, in effect been rewilding for 30 years now although they didn't use the word at that point also borders forest trust and they in southern scotland been re- rewilding carifron and now other bits of land in that area so there have been pioneers but i think it's linking that with the with the concept of rewilding being about restoring those natural processes which does make it different from many traditional conservation approaches it's all about putting back in those natural processes and seeing what happens i mean some people don't like the rewilding word because it has connotations to them although not to me of of going back to the past and actually for me it's about freeing up the future traditional conservation approaches have have great value i mean otmore is a bit of an example of that but many of them take an approach of trying to preserve or conserve particular species rather than natural processes that enable those species and it may be in some places losing some species for instance we don't know always what will emerge and that's partly what's exciting about it and hopeful about it and it makes those ecosystems much more resilient because you don't have to keep managing them. And, or at the very least, there's much less in the long-term human management of those, of those ecosystems, which, again, builds resilience. I mean, one of the reports that we did recently looked at the benefits of rewilding in terms of climate adaptation. So at the moment, our climate is changing. Climate zones are moving north in the northern hemisphere about five kilometres a year, which means that where a plant or a species might be perfectly adapted now in 10 or 15 years time it might not be adapted anymore because climate zone has has moved and what they've proved is that what will help species most is the ability to move through intact habitat so that they can move and adapt and and disperse to keep up with the climate zone that they're best adapted to and so creating these interconnected sort of almost corridors up and down the country so that the species that we have and the ones that will come that we want to bring back can move and adapt and we can build resilience into those into those ecosystems and habitats gosh that's amazing i hadn't i hadn't even considered that and i love the idea of um not knowing what you might find so uh what can we do well again i think everyone can can play their part from people that live in a flat in an urban area to people that may own large amounts of land or people that work on the sea. I think get engaged in what's happening around you. So again, the idea of neighbourhood rewilding groups or rewilding your local park, get involved in the friends of groups that many parks have. Look at what's around and who owns land. I mean, councils own a lot of land, for instance. We can influence them and you know, get directly involved, set up local groups or find out what local groups are around you. Then there's those that are lucky enough to, to own land. I think there's a lot 
that can be done and, and mixed models that are developing, like, for example, one of the members of the rewilding network, Wild Ken Hill, which people may know of because it was where Spring Watch and I think just now Autumn Watch was filmed recently. And they're taking a very mixed model. They have a third of the land is in regenerative agriculture, a third of the land is rewilding, and then a third is being managed because of coastal wetlands being managed in a, in a more traditional conservation way. I think people should get involved in their nearest national park, for instance, or, or the one that they love most and love visiting most, and call for wi- wilder areas to be created. Now, the, those national parks need to know that they have public support for that, and in supporting those people that own and live on the land within the national parks to develop and and, and create kind of nature-based enterprises, for instance, and find ways to sustain those local communities. So I think everyone can get involved in, in what, whatever way they can. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. Click, 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 click. Writer's block? Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. Canva. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Try Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost, built for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime, incredible load times, and 24-7 WordPress priority support, your sites will be lightning fast with global reach. And with Bluehost Cloud, your sites can handle surges in traffic no matter how big. Plus, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. Get started now at Bluehost.com. So that was Rebecca Wrigley of Rewilding Britain, talking with our own Annabelle Ross at Otmore Nature Reserve in Oxfordshire. And really interesting, Rebecca, going through all the different forms of rewilding. So I think quite often it's used as a sort of term, just a a blanket term, which quite hard to define. But I think she did a really good job of explaining all the different elements of rewilding. You know, not everybody agrees with rewilding. We've, We've had... But not everybody is totally for rewilding and we've got a really interesting podcast with david morris jones uh, a farmer in keradigian in the cambrian mountains of west wales where he was explaining some of the quite complex and fascinating objections that local farmers who are very tied to the land have to rewilding have a listen and uh you know good to compare the two the two points of view and talking of rewilding, in the studio I have two uh, creatures who deserve to be let out into the wild. Um, it's Anna and Jack who help make the podcast with me. And uh, hello. Hello. Lovely to see you. Hello. In the flesh, in the podcast studio. We're getting used to this. Uh, rewilding. How, how, is, how is it something that has come across your, your desk? Have you been out? In, have, you, <laughs> have, you, have you explored a rewilded area? Well, at the moment I'm back in Bristol and... I think there should be more rewilding of the city. I don't think we should always be thinking about like, turning over farmers' land into a place where we can have wolves and 
And we should be making more of an effort to rewild our urban spaces. Um, stop being so tidy, bigger trees, um, larger areas of planting, less annual planting and thinking about plants and uh, habitats in the more long term, I think. Definitely, definitely interesting. I think there's a lot of there's a lot of shortcuts that a, a, lot, a lot of councils seem to take, um, mentioning no names, but where an easy option is taken rather than letting a green area bloom and go through. It can look quite untidy at times, but it's the, op- the, the, the alternative is where they concrete over things or they put that horrible sort of, it's like gravel, pebble dashy type effect on, at the base of trees, which stops anything growing and stops the tree growing naturally. And then why not? But there is a sort of attitude as well. I found it in, in my hometown of Abergavenny, where you've got lots of people who really want to rewild the local park. And I say rewild, it's just let some grass grow a bit <laughs> longer and let some wildflowers develop and set seed, which does incre- in, attract loads of butterflies and birds to the park. But then there are other people who just don't like it being untidy. And there's something deep in human nature which just likes order and doesn't like to let nature run free. Now, I find that Personally, I struggle with that a bit. I think it's baffling because there is such beauty in the sort of random. Also, going to a park and wondering what might turn up is lovely, but when it's all shorn to like three or four, you know, three or four centimeters, I do get a bit uh, a bit saddened in the, in the heart, in my old heart. I guess is it. I, I feel like it's change that may be the problem here, and, and people's how they cope with change. Because I think a lot of that stuff where like you, you're saying that some people f- find that if you leave the grass to grow and just let some wildflowers grow, that it becomes untidy. But that's because people's concept of that space is that what it currently is, is tidy and that anything else is untidy. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think if that was always there, I don't know, would that then still be seen as un- untidy or would it then be seen as actually that is tidy because that's how it's always been? So you're saying people... People need to be exposed to a wilder side of things. We've almost become too tame. When people will find like an open space and plant a load of trees and just let those trees grow, that isn't seen as an untidy patch of grass. That's seen as it becomes an orchard or it becomes an arboretum or something like that. Whereas if you do the same, I guess on a smaller scale, you put some sort of wild flowers into a green space, that green space suddenly becomes seen as untidy rather than Actually, you're just growing these extra types of plants and flowers in that space. Almost, we need to take small steps at first to help people come on board with it and not feel that they're... Because everyone has ownership over parks and little edges and gardeny bits, as you're saying, Hannah, in cities. People feel a shared ownership of these places, so it's got to be done with consent and and explanation rather than perhaps being imposed. And I think that's possibly what has happened with some uh, farming communities in Britain and and rural communities that they feel rewilding is a bit imposed on them. And then they think, oh, it's outsiders, these these outsiders trying to to show us how to live our lives. Really intriguing, really interesting about how land is going to be used in Britain in the next few decades. So... Obviously, we hopefully will still be around to report on it. <laughs> um, talking of being wild, 
we went wild, didn't we, the three of us? We did. Mm. Yeah, normally we ask each other where we've been, but we've all been out together. <laughs> we didn't record much, did we? But uh, So we went on an urban safari and we went with the intention of seeing peregrines. And we found some due entirely to the eagle eyes, eagle eyes, I say, of, of Hannah Tribe, who I had my binoculars out, which are quite high-powered. I was searching all the usual places. <laughs> and then without binoculars, you pointed to two little tiny specks in the sky and said, there they are. If I'd been out on my own, I'd probably have gone, oh, there are no peregrines out today. And, and sort of, Because you've got to believe, firstly. <laughs> but they were there and they soared, they cut across the, the sort of urban sky and they came relatively close. So having last week talked about seeing them in the middle of Bristol and hearing them, it's really nice that we all caught up together and uh, and we saw some gulls washing themselves. And we saw about 15, 20 species yeah. of birds in a, in a 45-minute ramble. As soon as you start looking, they all sort of appear. Yeah, it was it was great and lots of lovely little moments of just life clinging on. And there's so much building work in the centre of Bristol and so much drilling and... In fact, Jack, you've recorded I've us. Got, I've escape. got a recording. Uh, are we going to produce? Are we going to? Are we going to publish it as a soundscape? Oh, I don't think so. I think there was. It was. It was quite quiet. I don't think there was enough nature sounds going on. And then halfway through, you got the horrendous drill sound that drowned everything out. And there's no way of. Yeah. smoothing that out <laughs> can we do it as a sound of the week <laughs> we can probably dig it out as a sound of the week yeah. ugly sound of the week well talking of sounds I think that you do not give yourself enough credit for your identification skills via sound because it was so helpful for you to be like there's a great tit around here somewhere and then Jack and I were able to look at me <laughs> <laughs> but we were a great team I think it was really good it was really fun and we must do more of that in fact we we've got a well this is episode ten of a twelve. It's flashed by in a like a like a kingfisher <laughs> on the wing, and we well we we've, we've got to start thinking about the next season, which I, I think it's the season I'm most excited about from a wildlife perspective. It is that time of year when we're really excited. I mean, when we went out for our lunchtime stroll, we could really hear the birds singing, even in the centre of Bristol, and. It's just a great time of year to be out. So we've got we're we're recording now in the middle of March. Pretty much the next three months are going to be alive with birdsong, lots of flowers, lots of insects. So we're going to try and capture that as best we can. So we'll let you know some more details about that next season. And we're very much interested in any suggestions. And if we can get to a really exciting wild experience near you that you'd like us to cover, and you can contact me very easily. My email address is editor at countryfile.com. And talking of spring loveliness, I, I've i been out collecting frog spawn again <laughs> in a uh, second attempt to get frogs into the pond. Now, what I do, I'm not one of these pond robbers, who uh, who've infamous pond robbers who goes around just taking frog spawn from ponds. I sort of go to places where I know the ponds are drying up or that the frogs have spawned in margins, which are sort of, you know, the, the water level's dropped. So I've collected a load of that, and I'm hoping. Last year was a disaster because I'd also <laughs> got some fish in the pond accidentally, uh, which grew and ate every single tadpole, the great chub disaster of 2021. <laughs> so this year I've got a f- hopefully a few tadpoles will survive to adulthood. 
and I will let you know how they get on. I'll be interviewing some of them. In the <laughs> <season>. <laughs> um, James Pond. James Pond. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's unforgettable. Anything else you need to say? Because I do have a joke. I do have a sort of countryside joke. There's silence, but I can, uh, for the benefit of listeners, there's there's general nodding, smiling, <laughs> and uh, appreciation. So a man goes to the cinema and he sits down to watch, ready to watch the film, and he finds it, it ends up sitting next to a sheepdog and its owner. And film starts, this is very unusual, a sheepdog sitting on the seat, very unusual. Anyway, he starts watching the film, and it's a comedy uh, of, of, and, and the dog <laughs> starts doing, you know how dogs kind of open their mouths and look quite sort of happy at times? And he's sort of looking at the dog, and when he's laughing, he looks at the dog, and the dog seems to be laughing at the same time. And uh, that's extraordinary. Anyway, he sort of follows it all the way through, and the dog seems to be just in time with all the gags. Anyway, at the end, he says, he turns to the, you know, the curtains come up, he says to the owner, that's, that's incredible. Your, your dog seemed to really enjoy the film all the way through. She said, yeah, it's totally incredible. He hated the book. And that, my friends, is... <laughs> it's a delivery for me, really. <laughs> So, um, that's, that's, again, that feels like a triumph. Um, I was waiting for the, he found it quite rough, but <laughs> that never came. Uh, yeah. What dog films could there be? The Hound of Music? Nice, nice. Can you think of other ones? Uh, Where Beagles Dare? <laughs> uh, anyway, we'll come back to, please do send all, um, Dog-related film ideas. I, I mean, Hound of the Baskervilles is not allowed, but it has to be a, a an entertainment. Dash Hound of the Baskervilles. He's taking it a step further. Yeah. Honestly, we could sit here all afternoon and think some more up. I would leave, though, actually. No, you, this is what you like. <laughs> so we've got only got two episodes left of this season, and they are a two-parter, dramatic two-parter, absolutely unmissable and possibly the best... Uh, two pieces of, of entertaining riverbank audio you'll ever hear. I was very lucky to spend a Sunday recently, a sunny Sunday, with the great Kevin Parr, a podcast regular, and we went fishing together. And it's so good, we had to cut it into two. <laughs> so join us again next week for Tales from Riverbank Part 1 with Kev Parr. He's a wonderful guest and there are some great surprises along the way. But for now, thanks to Rebecca Wrigley and Annabelle and to Jack and Hannah for their, uh, for laughing at my jokes. <laughs> <laughs> and and thank you also for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye. The dog father. The dog father. <laughs>